0: Hi hi, and welcome to Women on Fire podcast. Good morning, uh, at least it's morning for Good us Good morning. Right now. <laughs> we woke up early. Well, it's not that early, but sort of early to be here recording for you guys
1: <laughs> on Christmas Eve.
0: Yeah, yeah, because we wanted to do yeah. something very special on this special day, and. You know, we might not be the most consistent at recording these episodes, but we are committed. Okay. Just want you to know. Yeah, we'll out. figure it
1: out. We'll figure it
0: out. Let's figure it out. <laughs> out. We really will. I was gone. Life on call does and...
1: not make it the easiest. <laughs> not
0: at all. Truly. Yeah. But uh here we are again to dive into all sorts of fun things because, I mean i don't think we've had a podcast episode in like two months
1: <laughs> yeah it's been a little bit it's
0: been yeah. but why
1: would that be daniela what's uh, been going on in your world
0: well i flew out of my comfort bubble in hawaii all the way to el paso texas for three months so yeah that didn't help between on call and the three four hour time, time zone break. yeah yeah <laughs> So, so that was definitely part of it, but I'm back home. Yeah. So,
1: hopefully, well, tell us a little bit about your adventure.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, so first I actually flew to Houston because I was asked to quarantine. It wasn't mandated in Texas to quarantine at the time, but the first center asked it of me. So, all right, I got family in Houston. Great. I'll do it there. And that was great. I got to spend time with a cousin I hadn't seen in years who turns out is a doula and also interested in midwifery. You could have never expected that. Um, so it was great, hung out with her. And then I was actually asked, like, hey, actually, if you want to do one week instead of two weeks, you can do that, show up early, but well, we'd like you to do a COVID test. And honestly, that was very something I had to do a lot of um, inner pondering about. I was like, well, should I do it or should I just stick it out for another week? I've already done half the quarantine um but you know I, I, at the end of it I was like well I'm here on a mission the quicker I can get to my mission the quicker I can go home to my Hawaii bubble <laughs> so I did it I, I went and did the COVID test which I was pretty weary about but I ended up doing this drive-through testing one so they like hand you your things in your car and they guide you through it from the outside and you get to self So, I was very grateful about that because, you know, like, I was in control of the swab up my nose (laughs) the whole time, Um, which is, you know, it's a sensitive area. Um, So, like, I got got to control how slow or whatever I got to go in and all that, Um, which really made the experience um, fine, you know. So, cool. Got my test results a couple days later. Negative great. I drove to El Paso, like, an 11-hour car drive. Texas is so
1: big.
0: It's so big. It's, like, 10 (laughs) hours, and I'm still in Texas. It was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, it was, like, really mostly desert along the way and some random mountains. So it was, like, the same scenery for 10 hours.
1: (laughs) It's like driving across the Midwest too oh okay yeah northern northern part of the Midwest there's a lot of the same the same scenery
0: uh cornfields
1: corn and soybeans yeah well
0: there wasn't as much greenery on this end so it was trippy actually seeing it Houston Houston is like super humid so it's pretty lush and green there but then leaving it, it, like, gradually became drier and less plants and less green and more, you know, d- dusty, like, <laughs> um, and rocky. Um, yeah, El Paso is just, like, the desert, a dry desert. And I had never been in such a climate before. So that was a new thing, um, which I kind of totally loved because my hair was, like, super soft and silky. I was like, "Whoa! I have straight hair. Oh. hair. Yeah, because here in Hawaii, I got like like super frizzy hair." <laughs> um. Anyway, that's the least important part of my adventure, but still. <laughs> well, a fun thing to notice. A fun thing to notice. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Have to worry about my hair. <laughs> oh man! All right, so I get to El Paso, and you know, I really went into my adventure there pretty blind and not in a bad way just like I really didn't know anything about the midwifery climate in El Paso I didn't even fully realize that I was going to the borderlands which you know some might say well that was like didn't you do your research about where you were going (laughs) like I knew that it was you know um, there was that it was close to the border but I didn't realize that I was the birth center was literally like four minutes from the border (laughs) Um, and that that was actually a big part of the service there. So I went to a birth center called Luna Tierra Casa de Partos, and they have been around for about three years. They actually literally celebrated their three-year anniversary um, shortly after I got there. So that was fun. And, um, yeah, they... Do, they're there to serve the unique circumstances of the border life and the borderland community. You know, there's an expression in the community there that the community didn't cross the border. The border crossed the community, right? There's all this talk about the people crossing and whatever. But, um, you know, it definitely bears recognition that that community was there and was intact and integrated. And like, they were just one community before the border came across and all of a sudden, oh, now it's two different communities. You know, it's like, no, they were just, you know, they were the people <laughs> together. So, you know, just what side of the border did they happen to be on? Um, so yeah, it doesn't feel like you're in Texas at all. It's super different. <laughs> uh, it's just, you know.
1: That's so interesting. How long has, yeah. do you know how long the border wall has been there?
0: that is a great question yeah i don't know but it does run right along el rio bravo um, which does actually create you know a natural division between the north and the south and it's called el paso as far as i understand literally because it was el paso el paso is like it means the way or the path um so, it's where they would literally cross to get north before it was necessarily North America and South America. It's just like north of the river. Um, that's where they would pass over El Paso, <laughs> the pass. Um, so, you know, there was always that natural division, but it wasn't as politicized
1: as it is now necessarily. Um, I'm curious. Um, about and you might not know this well i don't know because you were going back and forth across the border yeah did it seem like it was the same community on either side very similar community wise yeah totally um
0: i mean well so things have gotten gradually more and more restrictive as far as how they can cross over time um from what i was You know, I tried to learn a lot there and they shared a lot of info. Um, So, you know, they said it's starting with 9-11, like before that things were way more casual and right after that was the beginning of major restrictions. Um, But, you know, people cross over all the time to work there. I mean, like their economies are so intertwined. They really depend on each other. I mean, maybe Juarez, which is the city in Mexico. Um, on the border, maybe they arguably might depend more on the El Paso community um, more than on the way around. But nonetheless, still, like, you know, um, my friend was telling me that her husband would wait in line a couple hours every morning to cross over and work in the U.S., And then you know, go back home, and you do that every day. Wait in line, wake up at 4 a.m. to wait in line a few hours to cross over. So, people will cross over all the time to work in the US, um, so they can get special visas for that. And a lot of people write the dollar exchange for vessels, you know, like if you earn money in dollars, then you can go to Mexico and live a little more comfortably. So, people do that. uh, sorry, what was the question? Did I answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> Something about the crossing.
1: I uh, forgot. Sorry. <laughs> I got, no, you I did. I asked Ramble. if it felt like. I asked if it felt like it oh. was still like community. Oh yeah, yeah. It sounds right. like because they're wor- living and working in both sides. Mm-hmm. Sounds like yeah, friends on both sides, family, family members. Right. Yeah,
0: and so, you know, family. Yeah. Just because you
1: said that the the saying about the 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 border or whatever crop divided the community as opposed to the community yeah. was divided
0: right yeah. yeah so it was really common to hear people be like oh yeah you know I've got some family members on this side and some on that side and on the Sundays we'll cross over and go visit the family over there and hang out with them and then sometimes we'll hang out with the family on the other side so they're just like always casually going back and forth again with the restrictions over time especially with COVID that's been a whole nother thing. Um, There's maybe less of that casual back and forth but that was the way of El Paso. There were special visas that um, allowed people to cross over into the U.S. for like a limited amount of hours maybe it was a day or something I'm not sure Um, and, and it wouldn't allow you to leave El Paso but it was uh, intended to, you know, yes, crossover, fuel the El Paso economy. Um, and then and then you go back, but I think those pieces have also been That's restricted. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so no. it's been tricky. Uh, and I guess I can segue into that with the restrictions there of What's happened with the virus a bit? Um, gosh, you know, I will preface this whole thing. Like, I also feel like this isn't totally my community to be fully speaking about. And, you know, like I'm not representing the community because it's not my community to represent. But, you know, just uh, some insights there where, you know, um, they limited the crossing, like the border crossings to only essential. Uh, crossings, right? So like no more of this, oh, I'm just casually crossing over because I wanted to go eat on the border or whatever. Um, and also bear in mind that crossing into Mexico is not as restricted as crossing back into the U.S. I cross into Mexico many times and, you know, they're they, they're welcoming. They I mean, they want people to come in. They're like, yes, please, you know, support the economy, you know. So they're, they're not really restricted. Well, and we're it.
1: neighbors.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're like, hey, man, yeah, just come through. You're like, you guys are welcome. Come on, no problem. <laughs> yeah, no hassle here. Um, The hassle is trying to get into the U.S. Um, <clears throat> And a lot of people don't want to chance it, right? So they've restricted it, only essential crossings. Um, and even though, you know, midwifery care which is mandatory licensure in texas by the way um is obviously essential going over for prenatal care um it's still actually very tricky and a lot of people don't want to chance it because you know there's been experiences not necessarily for prenatal care but in other general cases of people trying to cross the border and if the agent there decide they don't want to let you pass then they can also say they're known to say things like and don't try to cross again because we'll take your visa away so you know people don't want to chance that obviously um and
1: you know something i learned there too but is isn't like, the visa so they can cross
0: yeah but That's right that's the thing that's the thing i know like theoretically they should be able to cross no problem like yes you're coming over for prenatal care that is essential period end of story right it's it's following the rules but that's the thing with the border that i learned there that it's kind of a lawless area like literally that border like oh, like it, it it gets um they're not really bound to um I don't know, the ways of the law elsewhere throughout the US, it's strange. So like, yes, essential crossings are allowed. So who decides what is essential is ultimately the guard that's there that day. And if you get someone who's not happy to have people crossing over all the time, um, then he, that person might be a little more reluctant to let someone cross, so that's been a thing. And then you have the people that, you know, don't give people such a hard time. <laughs> So it, right. it, it's kind of a gamble, is is what it comes down to. So, um, uh, and it's not comfortable. You know, I was able to cross. I'm blessed to have dual citizenship from when I was born, and and so I was able to go back and forth. Great, no problem, smooth, and it was quick. But if you're crossing over with a visa, you're exposing yourself to them questioning everything. And you know, some people say like they'll ask for your phone, and they'll just go through your phone, and they'll just go through your purse and see who what your last calls were like everything, you know? Um, wow. So it's not a fun experience. So before people would cross over um, to the U.S. side um, and often go with their families, right? If they're crossing over and they're trying to cross over around their birth due date window, Um, you know, they want to go with family and be supported. But... People have had to actually kind of cross um, and often have to cross on their own. So now they're on their own to go give birth. So it's not ideal in many ways, you know. We know how much the love oxytocin hormone and just feeling happy and comfortable and with your loved one plays a role in the whole birthing journey. So that's a piece that um, kind of gets or has been Getting left behind lately because of you know the COVID madness. So you know it, it was sometimes dealing with with moms that you know weren't in the most comfortable state of mind, or you know they're leaving kids behind, or they're living somewhere that's just not their home. That's not the most comfortable, right?
1: That reminds me of our of our neighbor islands scenarios when you have or higher risk for, or according to whom, but, um, yeah, them having to travel here and um, now with restrictions here and who can come and who can go and um, they're not even necessarily flying parents over, like parents have to dig into their own pockets to fly over if their baby transports, Um, which is interesting that, they wouldn't even the insurance wouldn't even offer to fly the mother over
0: yikes yeah i did not know that part as if somehow it's okay to them to just ship a newborn on its own without a mom i don't know okay i didn't know that piece um yeah i don't know if we've ever talked about this before so maybe you can break that down a little bit more for people just about what happens when you're on like
1: molokai and you're gonna give birth
0: without an emergency situation, just like normal scenarios.
1: Well, I'm not even sure there is much of an option on Molokai actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you have a birth that's considered, you know, like they can deal with high risk on neighbor islands, but then if you're like, for example, one risk that doesn't really seem like high risk, even according to ACOG, is, um, is V back, and you're not allowed to V back in any of the neighbor island hospitals. So, and I know this also happens in Alaska because there's a lot of remote places in Alaska, and due to um, issues of access and who decides what access is the threshold, mm. um, changes the dynamic of of who can do what where. So, um. You know, we have a issue in Hawaii in general that we don't have enough physicians. And in the United States, we have a major issue of not even having enough um, OBGYNs or midwives. And of course, we're way OBGYN heavy, um, which is maybe part of the issue of why prenatal care and postnatal care is um so challenging in America and why we do have such terrible outcomes, it's because we per capita have significantly less um, doctors than we do have people seeking care or midwives. Um, obviously, we know we have a midwife issue, but so back to the microcosm of Hawaii, um, we also have a major physician shortage in general, like. And, um, of course, our legislation has just now um, cut over half of our midwifery force as well. Um, So that is, of course, something that's very much on our minds and kind of leads back into your entanglement of your education journey and you going to El Paso Mm. and the licensure requirements. And then, of course, legislation season, season is amping up again. So we're we're back into the um, into the ring of trying very hard to to protect really quality care, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is yeah. already significantly cut on so many even from the the levels of doctors and licenses. Um, we have such a major issue so anyway so that's the situation though is that people have to come over from neighbor islands when their babies are in NICU or um, if they have a high risk birth if they have like premature rupture of membranes but they're trying to keep the baby in things like that they all fly over to Kapiolani and wait and um, they if their family members want to come, they're on their own. They got to figure it out. And otherwise, and I'm, and so a lot of women will come because their family cannot come, whether it's financially or whether it's a place to stay. I mean, you know, babies can come in any kind of window. So, um, so we have a lot of women giving birth alone here too, that are separated from their families and their homes. And Right, exactly
0: and they're waiting around for this ginormous that's a lot of baby
1: yeah it's
0: an excellent answer (laughs) well it's a big issue and it deserves a (laughs) long-winded answer with lots of attention and details for people to just be more aware about it and right? We're doing this whole podcast in this episode so people can get it. Like, why does this matter? Why are we so fired up? It's because of this. Like, that's heartbreaking. The moms are just, like, out here. Like, I mean, you could birth, theoretically, I mean, around 37-ish to 42-ish. It's an enormous window to just randomly be away from your family for. So, you know, like, that's not comfortable or easy or really supportive for the happiest end of pregnancy time. Um, and and then yeah, and then you will go for an induction because you know, like, gosh, we can't afford to stay here too long. Like, I gotta get back to work. Or I gotta get back to my family. Like, who's gonna take care of my kids while I'm gone for? <laughs> five so what weeks if or you whatever? can't
1: fly over and your baby's in the queue? You know, like, what if you financially just can't? Yeah. Um, and there's also a major issue about even if you wanted to fly over to have a VBAC. But you financially cannot do it. There's just no way. So, then, folks who are already impoverished and being subjected to sub level care because of the systems that we have created and because of the lack of access to care, then we are basically dooming these folks who are already economically squashed, you know, like put in all these scenarios that they now have to have repeat Mm C-sections because they can't, they can't leave their community. They have to work until the baby's born and they have to go back at six weeks postpartum or they have to, you know, so it's, it's a real, it's a real debacle that we're actually facing because a lot of those people, we look again that like statistically, if you're black or Brown or, if you you know are from a low socioeconomical class then they already have the worst statistics and then we're just subjecting them to a situation that's an impossible climb
0: right and i mean that's, i mean even cost effective since that's what you know the system is usually most interested in I mean if you fly someone over neighbor island prices i mean come on that's not that much and if they have a chance of like a you know maybe a vaginal birth on the other island that's going to be cheaper than a c-section right off the bat
1: you know usually but it but but even if that was the case even if they're flying women over they can't miss five weeks of work or their husband can't stay home with the kids while they're here And so it's not even really about just that cost, just the cost of the flight and the birth. It's about the like bigger thing, you know? Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, and I think, and then we have, you know, the history of midwifery is, you know, barter and trade and make sure that we're taken care of and we'll take care of you. And it's become so professionalized (laughs) that, you know, like seeking that recognition or trying to get a system that just really doesn't value you at all to like honor you. And then giving away all of our freedoms in order to subject ourselves to what they deem is appropriate (laughs) <laughs> and now we've lost our barter system and our trade and our ability to like serve people because those kinds of midwives aren't allowed to practice anymore
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's kind Deep. of a, yeah it, it's a shit show <laughs> oh gosh yeah well that's they the gotta thing.
1: afford the licensing and they gotta afford like all so many levels yeah. and the, the and here They have to be able to afford an education that removes them from their home again. Yeah, (laughs) right. Okay. So I signed
0: up for the National College of Midwifery before I knew anything about anything. I had never attended a birth. I knew nothing of the nuances of midwifery. I knew nothing, truly. I was just like, hey, here is a school that allows me to not have to leave my island bubble that I keep referring to because I love it. Um. Because it is, it is purely long distance. They are doing lots of changes on their program now. So it is, as of January, 2021, it will in fact be purely online. But it was the only school that didn't require me to fly out. Every other school requires you to go to them at least once a semester or a year or something. Um, but it has its limitations too. Um, and you know, I had to find all my own teachers um, for the academics and the clinical stuff. And you know, even before this licensure thing, you know, we already have few midwives kind of sprinkled throughout the islands. Um, And for all the births that are required, you know, it it can take a lot of time to get those those numbers, (laughs) Um, which I was fine with at the beginning. You know, I was like, all right, that's okay. Midwives are supposed to be patient, right? So there's no rush, Um, and that was absolutely the appropriate approach and it, and um I'm so thankful I started there and not right off the bat just being like I gotta go to a high volume birth center to see everything right away <laughs> um, I'm very grateful I got to start at a slow you know mellow pace it's not that it was slow like in a judgmental way it's just like no it's just like you know it wasn't overbearing because if I you know, sometimes you, sure, you can see 10 births in a week, but did you really learn all that much, you know? Like that that was a common conversation I had with folks in El Paso because there's other birth centers there um, where it's like, yeah, births nonstop. Like one friend, she's like, yeah, I saw 100 births in a year. But honestly, at the end of it, like I still felt like I, I hadn't really learned enough to actually be a midwife. <laughs> like in 100 births, I don't even have time to process <laughs> Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Integrating. Well, oh, and I think
1: you know, we hear there were a lot of midwives, but in order to qualify for your numbers, there's only a select few. In fact, didn't you have to register one of your preceptors yourself? um didn't what, you have to register dr lori to be a preceptor yeah right well actually, so there was only one yeah. here and then you got a second one registered
0: yeah right and
1: um and pretty much no one else qualifies
0: Right. Well, okay. So there was technically three, but then the third person didn't have an active practice really. So that wasn't all that helpful. And then, and then the second person was like, well, they also have a student. So though, you know, like they were already a little busy with that student and, you know, so it's like, okay, there's only so many options, but it doesn't mean that those limited options are going to work out for you anyway. So it's like even, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it was tricky so okay so I did my slow and steady learning for like three ish and a half or something years here and then I got to a point where like okay I did my slow and steady now like I just got a few more to go I gotta just like like just knock them out (laughs) Um, for lack of better words like I just gotta get these last few numbers and it this is all sounding like I'm super obsessed with my numbers but the thing is, with the National College of Mineralogy, you have to pay extra for every year that you're enrolled beyond uh, either two or three years. I think it's three years. And and I was hitting that mark. I was like, ah, I'm going to have to pay extra. I was like, I just want to be done with NCM. Like I just want to <laughs> close that part of the study, thing, which meant finishing the numbers. So that's really why I went to El Paso. I was like, whatever, I just want to finish my numbers. Little did I know I was gonna fall in love with El Paso, and it was way more deeper than just my numbers. Um, Yeah, if you get anything out of this, just know I had an amazing experience there. I I fell in love with the team. I fell in love with the community. I felt so welcomed and received. Um, gosh, yeah you know, I recommend it to any students out there that are trying to look around, because I looked for a long time, like, where can I go to learn? And um, I didn't want to go just anywhere, you know, Um, I I was very particular about what I was looking for. And it and I did also want to be in a Spanish speaking community, um, which is, you know, kind of limited in the U.S. as far as that being the predominant culture. Um, It's like, el paso and parts of california maybe um so yeah student midwives if you speak spanish then i'm so I'll glad that you're out slow and
1: steady oh well jeannie you know i'm here's... so glad that you're slow <laughs> and steady even got you to the right place oh
0: yeah it's funny while you were saying that your audio was actually super slow it was perfect <laughs> yeah you know I took I bought a one-way ticket because I was like okay I think I'm being called over here but if I show up and this doesn't feel right like I'm out yeah but no I ended up saying way longer than I thought I was going to um and honestly it was really hard to come back like I I kept thinking, like, maybe I should stay, like, six months or something, but I was like, ah, I gotta, I was like, I don't know, but the, the point is, it, it was amazing. Um, another piece I want to share with you is, you know, about being grateful about the full and steady thing, and being grateful that I started my w- midwifery journey from um, learning with individuals such as yourself, and, you know, Lori, and the diversity of midwives that we have here that we keep talking about is important for us to preserve. Um, where it was a type of midwifery where, you know, like it's not necessarily bound by outside forces and, um, which I know scares some people, but what that allows is for a type of midwifery that is truly circumstantial and woman-centered and, you know, paying attention to what is without being scared about irrelevant arbitrary numbers that some random person at the state capitol made up. (laughs) <laughs> because yes. you know it, it, i'm so i'm always so grateful, grateful for that because if i had started my midwifery journey from the perspectives of these very confined restrictive parameters of uh licensure and how they tend to be even though they're different state to state just the general spirit of what licensure brings into midwifery and what that looks like like, oh man, like it would be very hard to let go of that. You know, if I had started there, it would yeah. have been hard to let go of certain parameters and fears. Like I would have trained myself to truly believe that no, this is it, and this, anything beyond this line is never okay.
1: Yeah, I, I'm always thinking about that because when I talk to other midwives in other places, um, when I went to Washington and and we were invited to Um, fly to Washington to support a friend because she felt like her midwife was great and she really liked her, but she felt like her practice was too restrictive and it was based upon her licensure, but also upon meeting the woman Um, that the, the midwife, you know, we were talking about how we were in an unlicensed state and she said, oh my gosh, that's so scary. Oh my gosh! Like it's so interesting. It's like when people say, "Wow, you gave birth at home!" Like you're so brave. And a lot of the women who give birth at home say, "Like wow, I think you're brave for going (laughs) to the hospital." Exactly. Right. It felt like one of those scenarios where it was like
0: wow
1: (laughs) yeah it depends
0: on where you're standing it
1: really does and and i am always grateful because i have gotten to see things that are not allowed in other places and have and maybe it's a fluke that everything was fine but now i've been doing this for 10 years and i've you know seen many hundreds of births and witnessed many, many miracles or that are just everyday miracles, you know, like it's just babies being born. And when you can pull away that fear and that restriction and that authority, and and you can be really woman-centered and look at like, I think about, and I was just talking to you about this, like listening to like the evidence-based bot birth podcasts and thinking about like statistics and all these things but then to look outside of those numbers and those things and say well where do i fall because i'm not just a statistic and i'm not just like in the mainstream you know like flow of health and wellness and education and and care even you know and so to be able to take those numbers but then also realize that those are just cases. And we don't know the background of those cases of how that person Mm -hmm. eats or the lifestyle or what kind of information they've been given or encouraged um, and how they've been encouraged or supported. And, you know, all those things play a factor in that one statistic. And so Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily seem to me like some of the things that I've witnessed are that like, Unreasonable that it worked out, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I've seen things work out way, 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 way more than not. Yeah. (laughs) If we want to talk statistics, you know, like I've really only seen of my whole practice and working with others, like we have like less than a two percent transport rate, and of an emergent things are less than that. Right. Yeah. So I, I am also very grateful because I, I really do feel like we've been able to witness truth in birthing practices mm. and truth in honoring and representing and supporting women and families and what is right for them. Yeah. Yeah. And it isn't clouded and shaded in a bunch of like, oh, that's the impossible feat
0: right yeah i mean a simple parameter that's pretty standard across um licensing scopes of practice is the cutoff of 37 weeks or 42 weeks if you birth in the middle of that range great if you birth before 37 or after 42 like no that's not uh, uh okay for midwives to attend licensed midwives um and I'm not saying yes or no that you should birth your babies before 37 or after 42. All I'm saying is I think it's your decision, not some random politician or policymaker maker you know, or a doctor or a like. No, <laughs> the facts are, you know, you can share statistics and whatever and information, but it should be in the woman's hands, the person actually carrying the baby, to decide. Well, you know what? I'm actually 36 and five, 36 weeks and five days. Like, I, I, I feel like we're good.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Or
0: whatever, whatever. You don't, you know, if you want to, period. And that's what I've mostly been able to witness. Um, I've actually never attended the birth of a baby before, 37 weeks. But besides the point,
1: um, <laughs> uh, the point. I've had a few. I've had a yeah. few. I even, yeah. there was one woman that delivered both of her babies two days before 36 weeks. Mm. Um, and there's situations that I've been put in that I'm not like, Ooh, this is the best I've been put in situations that I'm not so comfortable with. Um, but I also respect the, the intuition and the, and honor the person. And you know, that woman I was assisting, it was early on and both of her babies came in that window. The first time it happened, we were like, Ooh, kind of early you know but she was like I am not going to the hospital and they're like okay so and she had a perfect like five and a half pound baby she was a teeny 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 little lady and the next baby came and the baby was like just shy of six Mm -hmm. and both of those babies were fine and great and she knew how to take care of them she kangarooed them and fed them and wrapped them up in her shirt but she was like there is no way I'm going to put my baby in a plastic isolette mm-hmm. that is not what's best for my baby just right. because they're a couple days shy and what do you do if you have a license you have to say okay well you can free birth or you can go to the hospital but I can't right. give you any support or nothing exactly. or information or I have to tell you that you're that what you're doing is not okay and
0: right are you a better midwife because you abandon someone when you know they're not going to transport or whatever it Brian. Like,
1: right well or even alone. just yeah like i don't know i feel that we're put it that puts a person's license or liability over their intuition because we actually were like you know she feels it's fine oh, totally. and man. you know so like i'm gonna let my license dictate uh, my intuition or even or be honest and say well, I feel like you're right, but I can't be with you. I have to leave you, you know? And then what if she does birth at home? What if she doesn't, what if she ends up going and getting subjected to her baby being in the NICU that doesn't need to be there? And what imprint does that make on that baby and their life? And because they're introduced to blue sterile gloves and ventilators and beeping and monitoring and (laughs) instead of being kangarooed right next to mama's heart, you know, and I'm not saying that one is better or worse really, because some women, absolutely many, many women absolutely would go in and have their baby at Mm -hmm. the hospital. Yeah. But I'm just, it's again, it's just looking at, it's not damning one thing or another, it's Mm -hmm. respecting it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that every different person has a perspective of what's right and true for them. And I feel like the gift of midwifery care though, is that we really build a bond and a relationship that I know that the person that I'm serving isn't bonkers, you know, like they're responsible Mm. and I can can respect them and I can support them without feeling um, that I'm putting my whole life at risk. Right. Well.
0: yeah and yeah we're talking about autonomy here people sovereignty in the age of everyone talking about decolonization like this is it you know this is it and it
1: starts yeah. during gestation it starts exactly. during
0: birth totally in the womb
1: <laughs> how how you are born and how you are received does matter
0: hmm